don't think of armor brigades, strike brigades, just cruising around in their vehicles doing you know, drive-by coin. You cannot do drive-by coin. Hey everyone, this is Major Haziano, and I'm the producer of the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. For today's episode, we're delighted to bring you Lieutenant General Retired Sean McFarland, who came onto the show to talk about his views on the use of mechanized forces in counterinsurgency operations. General McFarland is a non-resident senior fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and spent an illustrious 28-year career in the U.S. Army before retiring in 2018. During his time in service, he was the commander of 1st Brigade Combat Team, 1st Armored Division during the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, and was later the commander of Coalition Forces for Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, where he fought against ISIL in 2015. General McFarland sat down with Major Ryan Van Wee to talk about a variety of topics, such as the employment of combined arms and counterinsurgency, President Biden's announcement to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, and whether he thinks the U.S. military is appropriately structured to meet the emerging threats of the future. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. This is Major Ryan Van Wee, Instructor of International Affairs here at the U.S. Military Academy. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing counterinsurgency and security force advising with Lieutenant General Retired Sean McFarlane. Sir, thank you for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you, Ryan. So to start off our discussion, I'd like to start with a few questions based on your tenure as the Ready First Brigade Combat Team Commander in Ramadi from 2006 to 2007. You and your team arrived in Ramadi in June 2006 during a period when insurgent and sectarian violence levels were sharply increasing in Iraq. This was before FM 324 was published, refining U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine. Looking at the broader operational approach, U.S. and coalition forces were going through a process of consolidating on larger forward operating bases and commuting to assigned patrol sectors. Ready First Combat Team took a very different approach in Ramadi. Could you share your brigade's assigned mission and how you developed your initial vision for stabilizing Ramadi, sir? Yeah, sure. Um, that's a great setup. So when we first moved into Iraq, one of my battalions went to Heat, which is just west of Ramadi, and the rest of the brigade uh, went up to Talafur, out to Sinjar on the Syrian border, replacing the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, commanded by uh, a guy named H.R. McMaster, who you've probably also heard of. So H.R. and I we went way back. We we're old friends. So uh, it was a pretty smooth transition, and he'd done a great job of tamping down uh, the violence in Talafur. There were still some residual pockets of resistance that we had the opportunity to uh, sort of emulate what 3rd Cav had been doing by moving in and establishing combat outposts and clearing those uh, last uh, areas. And we stayed up there for a few months, and there was a lot of hemming and hawing up at the uh, MNFI and, and level about whether or not we were going to relocate down to Ramadi. Ultimately, the decision was made that we would. So the time that we spent up in Talafur and out to Sinjar was really sort of a great uh, ramp up for us to move down to Ramadi, where uh, it was about an order of magnitude more violent than uh, Talafur had been. So, uh, but we had learned some techniques about establishing combat outposts 
and combined controlling and, and the like. So, and we figured there were about 3,000 uh, enemy in the city of about a half a million. The vast majority of the population was in the city. They did not abandon the city. So we had to operate in and amongst a very densely populated urban environment. The city had been beaten down a bit over time. The 2nd and 28th and the two predecessor units, I think uh, 1st Brigade or 2nd Brigade of the 2nd ID, I can't remember which, had both taken about 100 KIA in the enemy control of the city. So, you know, my thought was, well, if I'm going to lose 100 soldiers, whether I go into the city or not, I'm going to go into the city. You know, I want to have something to uh, show for all of those casualties. Because we were getting hammered on the fob. While during our rip toe, we lost three soldiers, you know, just on the fob. So from indirect fire. So we took a more aggressive posture. I figured with my more experienced troops, you know, I, I could do that. And, uh, and so it began. Over time, you know, I knew I would need more forces. The 7th Iraqi Army Division was nascent. Uh, it was just forming. Uh, we had the 1st of the 1st IA Division in the east with the 1st of the 506. They were an experienced brigade, but they were on the east side of the city. They were not in the city. Uh, the 7th IA was around the city, but uh, again, very, very uh, early days of forming that division with only one brigade co-located with the division headquarters, the 2nd Brigade. So I was looking at the police as the way to expand my uh, force uh, we only had about 140 or 150 cops. We were authorized 3,000. So that was where I had the biggest growth opportunity. Uh, and that's what led me towards tribal engagement. One of the RIPTOA tasks that I had was, okay, what's the tribal laydown? You know, what's the local governance? Well, there was no local governance. There was only the governor. There was no mayor. Uh, the governor was limited to the government center. He was escorted in and out of the government center every day by a platoon of Marines back and forth to his house on the outskirts of the city. That was it. The The sheikhs had suffered an, a lot of casualties trying to stand up to Al-Qaeda, and they were kind of laying low. So that was the situation going in. So I was going to start to incrementally move into the city, and the hope was to tribal engagement, find out who was going to be willing to join our police recruiting. Police recruiting had died out due to massive terrorist strike a few months before we arrived on a recruiting process. So we said, you know, let's, instead of having a big recruiting drive, let's have a lot of little recruiting drives out there in the tribal areas. And that's kind of how everything started. Thank you, sir, for that very helpful context. So looking at the ongoing debate in the academic literature today uh, about the efficacy of population-centric and enemy-centric counterinsurgency tactics, there seems to be a lot of overlap in this debate in the approach that uh, one one took in Ramadi, um, leveraging perspectives uh, from both approaches. So to briefly summarize for our audience, the population-centric approach suggests that counterinsurgents should focus on securing the population, gaining civilian trust, and improving local governance. Conversely, the enemy-centric approach argues that the application of government force and coercive power is the most crucial factor in counterinsurgent success. Were these coin force employment frameworks helpful for you as a practitioner, and how would you define effective coin force employment, sir? Okay, first of all, I would say it's a bit of a false dichotomy. You really need to use a little bit of both 
but uh, if I was to say which way I lean, I'd probably lean towards population-centric approach. Um, the uh, if, if you use only the enemy-centric approach, it's like trying to fight alligators that are hiding in a swamp. And the population-centric approach is more of a drain the swamp uh, and then kill the alligators, or the alligators will you know, just leave or die of their own importance and can't hide anymore from you. So, you know, I'm more of a population-centric person. And, and uh, you know, it, it became obvious to me after a while as we were setting up our, our little neighborhood cops and moving, we were basically moving a flock, frontline of troops from west to east into the city and gaining more and more control of that, that, those neighborhoods and able to uh, begin the rebuilding process. And we did the same in the tribal areas on the outskirts. And the success began success. And the more the tribes saw the success in one area, the more the other tribes uh, or neighborhoods wanted to be a part of that and get out from underneath Al-Qaeda. But yeah, I think the enemy-centric approach is sort of not as effective as just trying to put yourself between. And that's why the combat outposts are so important. You know, they allowed us to get to know the population. I did not and would not allow any of my soldiers to do presence patrols. They, but we, I would allow them to do uh, census patrols. You know, so every patrol had to have a task and purpose. And they would go out house to house and ask everybody, okay, how many people live here? You have a, we a weapon, that's fine. You know, we just want to know what you got. You know, is that your car parked outside? What's the license? What's your job? You know, how many kids? That sort of thing. So we got to know the neighborhood. And, and that that was sort of the retail kind of conversation. We would bring along police or uh, Iraqi army folks so that they would kind of get the a comfort level established. So that was my population-centric approach uh, in the urban environment where the tribal ties were not quite as strong. So some coin researchers as part of this debate have suggested that mechanized forces may not be ideal counterinsurgents since mounted patrols restrict interaction with the local populace, limit intelligence gathering, and degrade coin effectiveness. How does that research align with your personal experiences leading an armored brigade during coin operations, conducting population-centric counterinsurgency, and how did your brigade's mechanized force structure help or hinder coin operations in Ramadi? Yeah, so that is based on a false understanding of how mechanized forces operate in an urban environment. You know, if you're patrolling buttoned up, you know, inside of a vehicle, whether it's wheeled, tracked, it, you can't be an effective counterinsurgent if you're mounted all the time, right? However, a combination of mounted and dismounted forces is the ideal force for counterinsurgency in an urban environment or any environment because you now you have mobile protective firepower supporting the, the troops that are uh, on the ground. That gives you the ability to rapidly escalate beyond anything the enemy can bring to bear in terms of firepower. You can, uh, if necessary, evacuate casualties under uh, armor, but more importantly, you can shift your forces around. Uh, a lot more readily too, so it gives you a lot more um, opportunities to uh, to deal with uh, whatever the enemy throws at you. Go figure, right? Combine arms. Wow, what a concept! Uh, I didn't invent it. It's been out there for a while. People should try it. 
you know, the Navy SEALs had a name for our Abrams tanks. They, were, they call them tick stoppers. Tick, if you don't know, means troops in contact. Yeah, once a 120 on Limbers, you know, pretty much that was the end of whatever sniper fire you were uh, dealing with. So um, combined arms works. Uh, joint, obviously, works too. But, um, you know, if, if there was any problem at all with the with having tanks in the city is what was that I didn't have enough of them to go around. Uh, I wish I had more. And Bradley's. And uh, that said, tanks do take a toll on the infrastructure. They'll uh, turn any city street in most parts of the world into an open sewer very quickly as they crush the sewer lines underneath them. And, you know, the third leg of combined arms is artillery, and we use the heck out of artillery. Following up on that question, other researchers have suggested that mechanized forces should not be employed as counterinsurgents since their significant firepower endangers civilians and increases collateral damage. However, several COIN practitioners from Iraq have argued that armored vehicles protection and stabilized secondary weapon systems allow mechanized units to operate with precision and restraint when operating around civilians. What is your perspective on this debate? And how did your brigade work to mitigate collateral damage in a heavily populated Ramadi? Like I said, you know, it's a combination of mounted and dismounted operations. So I mean, we had a lot of dismounts, and I wish I'd had more dismounts. I had to dismount some of my tank crews. But you know what? Um, the fact that they had to do dismounted patrols when they were aboard their tanks, they had a much better perspective on, uh, you know, what the, uh, the proper use and, and, uh, and uh, what the improper use of armor and uh, the 120-man gun and others, uh, other uh, systems on tank with. So, so no, I, I don't hold with that point of view, but we did institute uh, certain rules of engagement. I mean, because when you're operating, when you're setting up combat outposts in an urban environment, if you're going to have interlocking fires, you know, a 120 round will punch through a lot of these kind of third world construction buildings, you know, and you, you're basically in everybody's in everybody else's SDC, right? And, uh, and and so you had to be kind of careful about that. And we had a very good system of uh, tiers, grid index reference system. Tiers was the terrain index reference system. So every building had a tiers number on it. And we could say, hey, we're taking fire from, uh, you know, Alpha Charlie 1-7. Uh, and, and then before you were allowed to use your main gun, you had to get approval from your battalion uh, tactical operations center. And he would say, okay, I know where you are. I'm looking at you on, uh, you know, Blue Force Tracker. I can see where, you know, uh, Alpha Charlie 1-7 is. And you got a clear line of fire. There's no friendlies on the other side. Okay. Because there was never a, a situation where a tank crew was at such risk that it had to immediately return fire. That's the great thing about a tank, you know. So he, so that tank would wait, be patient, get the clearance of fire, and then they'll number the main gun. So that was what we did. Now, I will say this. The Army should really strongly consider developing more munitions for the main gun that are better tailored to point in an urban environment, much as we've done for Hellfires. I mean, you have very limited collateral damage Hellfire missiles that we use uh, all the time, and we need something like that for the tank. Now, again... Don't think of armor brigades and striker brigades as just cruising around in their vehicles doing you know, drive-by coin. You cannot do drive-by coin. You've got to get out of it. Thank you, sir. 
Your earlier responses highlight the importance of tactical adaptation and the necessity to develop new SOPs as conditions on the ground change. As a brigade commander, how did you foster an environment which facilitated organizational adaptation to a new coin environment, both during the train-up and during your deployment? So look, uh, one of the principles of critical thinking is something called uh, intellectual humility, right? Uh, you have to be willing to accept that you're not the smartest person. You might be the most experienced soldier in the brigade combat team as a full colonel and all that, uh, but you're not necessarily the smartest. You know, uh, so, some of the E4s out there are probably smarter than I was. Uh, maybe not as experienced or educated, but, you know, intelligent. So they would come up with great ideas. And through battlefield circulation, I would learn all kinds of good stuff. My, my battalion commanders and, and company battery and troop commanders were the ones who developed these low-level relationships. Doing battlefield circulation, talking, you know, the, the idea of how to track census patrols and assemble a database that came from a specialist in one of the battalions who was talking to me. You know, I'm not a power, I'm not an Excel whiz. You know, I'm more of a, I'm from the PowerPoint dojo than the Excel dojo. But, but this kid had figured it all out. I'm like, you know, um, you know, uh, pivot tables and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, this is awesome. We're going to do this for the whole brigade. I love it. You know, uh, this court came up with the training. The deputy commander came up with all, you know, how we were going to engage with and induct these vast numbers of recruits that we began getting from the, the shakes and all these kind of folks uh, and make them, you know, train and equip them to some level and pay them and so forth. These were all local ideas that became brigade level uh, operations that, that, that bubbled up. Combat outpost in a box, top in a box, you know, that came from one of my engineer company commanders. Uh, you know, sir, hey, how do we build a cop overnight? You know, we roll in at night and by morning, you know, we have this fortified enclosure, you know, Fort Apache in the middle of Indian country. How do you do that? You know, so the, the, the important thing is ask questions and then listen to the answers. <laughs> you know, don't ask a question, just ask a question. Say, yeah, 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 thanks, got it. You know, I mean, you got to listen because these guys are smart. They are really, really smart. Your next deployment to Iraq took place under very different circumstances. So from your 2006 to 07 tour in Ramadi, and then fast forwarding, uh, you know, a few years later after the 2011 U.S. withdrawal from Iraq, continued tension between the Shia-dominated government and the Sunni minority, ISIS emerges and conquers large portions of northwestern Iraq, northern Syria, 2014. So rather than sending a significant number of U.S. ground forces, the U.S. opted for a smaller footprint that primarily consisted of security force advising, special operations, and enablers like artillery, close air support, intel, surveillance, and reconnaissance platforms. In September 2015, you assumed command of Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, CJTFOIR, the operational headquarters that led the counter-ISIL campaign. How did U.S. and coalition forces successfully adapt to this smaller footprint during the counter-ISIL campaign? And do you view this new force employment approach of security force advising and enabler support as being a model for future conflicts? Yeah, I think there are some aspects of it that are uh, a useful model. You know, the, the train advice, or security force assistance, really, it, you know, you can describe it as uh, punching with other people's fists, right? But, you know, you got to teach them how to punch and you got to build up their muscles and 
uh, and then you got to be there in their corner, you know, in between rounds, you know, to kind of, you know, rinse out their mouth guards and, 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 and bandage their wounds. But initially it was a struggle. So when we got there, it was a bit of a stalemate. You know, the enemy, you know, was holding Ramadi, you know, hanging on by our fingertips in Beji. You know, Baghdad was still at risk. We had no uh, presence on the ground in Syria uh, either. We had to design a campaign that was going to enable the indigenous forces, all of them, Peshmerga, Iraqi security forces of all flavors, while uh, the Syrian Democratic forces, which were built around the YPG, the, the pre-Syrian army, you know, all these different, you know, the, the Sunni tribal forces, uh, what was left of them, counterterrorism service, uh, there was just all these different Groups. And then you have the Hashtashabi, you know, the Popular Mobilization Forces, which were a couple hundred of those different groups. Uh, some of them were 100% aligned with uh, Qasem Soleimani in Iran. Others were with the Marjoria and, uh, you know, the uh, Ayatollah. They were much more uh, amenable to coalition forces. So, you know, how do you, how do you wield this? And then my headquarters had um, you know over 20 troop contributing nations in it. So we were a bit of a tower of Babel ourselves. Getting some sort of a cohesive plan together and articulating that both to the folks in Washington, D.C., who were growing increasingly frustrated and skeptical of our ability to, to defeat ISIS, and then within my own headquarters, and then to the indigenous forces and, 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 and get that all working together, all the oars in the water giving way together, as they say, that was a process. Uh, but we got there in a couple of, took us two or three months to get there. One of the key challenges, you know, Clausewitz says, you know, one of the first most important jobs of a, of a commander or statesman is to understand the kind of war he's about to fight, you know, neither mistaking it for nor trying to uh, change it into something alien to its nature. Well, basically what we had in ISIS was not, an insurgency or a terrorist force, you had a hybrid, almost conventional enemy. And we were confronting it with a counterinsurgency trained and equipped force. The Iraqi security forces, we had trained and equipped for COIN. And we were trying to do all this under counterterrorism type of authorities. So, you, you know, you had all these mismatches. And, and I was watching these guys trying to get Ramadi back. And every day was like three yards in a cloud of dust. I mean, that's the best that they could do. Uh, we were literally measuring daily progress in meters uh, by the Iraqi security forces uh, around Ramadi. And, uh, you know, the problem was they, once again, were not using combined arms tactics. They were using counterinsurgency tactics. They would encounter a minefield, a surface-laid minefield, looked like something out of, like, Tobruk or El Alamein. And they were sending out their EOD techs to disarm or disable these things one at a time. Well, the enemy had these things overwatched, and they were killing all these EOD techs, which were probably some of those highly trained soldiers in the Iraqi security forces. And I was like, you don't need to be clearing these minefields. You need to be breaching them and getting to your objective. So we'll clear them later. You know, we'll bring in Yunami you know, or somebody like that to, to clear. But you got to breach them. That's the military operation. So we began bringing in Nicklicks and uh, things like that, teaching them how to use line charges, teaching, we had to bring in um, smoke uh, rounds and obscuration uh, systems, uh, smoke 
we, we pulled some out of Aniston Army Depot, brought them over, um, you know, all these kinds of things. And then we taught them how to employ them, how to use tanks, how to use armored D7 bulldozers, line charges, and obscuration, and indirect fire to suppress the enemy to breach your way through these obstacle belts. That was a, that took a little bit of time and, and effort. Then we started looking at the campaign in terms of close and deep operations. Hey, you know, are we going to keep chipping away, you know, beating our head against the wall, or are we going to start shaping the enemy out of contact with the deep operations, you know? And the problem was all of our ISR was going to, and, and uh, close air support was going to dynamic targets. In other words, you pop your head above the parapet and we'll react to that. Instead of going out and finding you, you know, while you're, you know, sitting around in your assembly area smoking a cigarette and killing you there. So when you least expect it. So we, we came up with a deep operations, uh, a, a series of those, the most notable of which was called Operation Tidal Wave 2, which went after threat funds, um, both from oil and from captured banks. And I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the bank vault exploding and all that kind of stuff you know that you know and then the, the the targeting process that goes into that that had to be built from scratch the battle rhythm events for the fourth indigenous force generation we call it the fourth generation working group or big wig we just made that name up you know but you know we had no process for it we uh we had a process for dynamic targeting but it was all ato cycle dependent uh there was nothing really about shaping for deep operations or anything like that, identifying decision points, and then putting all of your intel collection assets towards helping you decide the decision you need to make at that DT. Uh, all, all these, uh, you know, battle rhythm events, none of this is like pulled out of thin air, right? I mean, all of this is kind of in our doctrine. All we had to do was apply it to indigenous forces, enabling indigenous forces. You know, we have a tendency to look at everything and say, oh, well, we've never done this before. Let's start with a clean sheet of paper. No, let's start with our doctrine and adapt it. And uh, and that's what I did. I took basically air land battle doctrine, now what we would call multi-domain operations. We did eventually employ cyber ops in there, too, and, uh, and, and put it all together. Thank you, sir. With the U.S. set to withdraw all American forces from Afghanistan by September 2021, recent analyses have highlighted the dangers posed in a post-U.S. Afghanistan. The U.S. withdrawal occurs at a time that the U.S. is shifting focus from CENTCOM to Indo-PACOM as great power competition with China intensifies. Given your experiences in Iraq and the ongoing regional presence of ISIL, how important are the remaining 2,500 U.S. forces to Iraq's stability and regional stability? Well, they're absolutely essential. I think one of the biggest mistakes we made in the region is withdrawing at the end of 2010. That's what gave ISIS the opportunity to, to metastasize. And, uh, you know, hopefully we've learned our lesson, at least in Iraq and Syria, about that. But unfortunately, you know, we seem to be making the same mistake in Afghanistan right now. Um, by the way, Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, not only Russia, Afghanistan was seen, seen as the old... Uh, the great game, right, between the empires, England or the British Empire, the Russian Empire, you know. Well, hey, it's still part of a great game. Now between China, Russia, and the U.S., and now you got Iran in the mix, too. So, you know, uh, if we create a political vacuum 
or a security vacuum, bad actors are going to rush in to fill that vacuum. Uh, you know, China's trying to build its uh, Silk Road through Pakistan and Iran, and we're abandoning our uh, strategic outposts there in Afghanistan to help us not only monitor that, but maybe even pre prevent its expansion into Afghanistan. So, so from that perspective, I think it's a mistake. Also, from a credibility perspective, you gain credibility in inches, you lose it in miles, right? And, uh, you know, my engagement, our engagement with the, the, the Sunnis, Arabs in Iraq, you know, was hard fought inch by inch, but we gained a lot of credibility with them. And we pulled out at the end of 2010 and left them to the tender mercies of Maliki and Suleimani and, and actors like that. We lost that. And, and they suffered horrendously at the hands of not just the, the Shias, but also uh, the ISIS uh, folks who came in. I mean, it was a bloodbath, a literal bloodbath that the Sunnis, and it was our fault. We own that. Just as we own what happened to our erstwhile allies in uh, Southeast Asia when we pulled out. We are an unreliable ally, and now we're going to do it to the Afghans? You know, all these women that we've educated, how are they going to be looked at in our absence? So, yeah, I, I think it, it's not only strategically bad, it's morally bad for us to completely abandon this area. Look, we can keep 2,500 people in Afghanistan and 2,500 people in Iraq. It's not a forever war, okay? It's a problem that may not have a solution, but it's a problem that we can manage, that we can keep more or less and you know, on an even plane and, and prevent it from turning into another ISIS type of situation where we have to rush in uh, to a five alarm fire burning building. You know, we can keep things kind of at a low simmer, very manageable, very manageable. The number of casualties that we're suffering in Afghanistan right now are, I think, lower than the number of casualties we, we suffer in training in the last year. But we're not going to stop training. So I think it's a mistake. The only reason we were able to fight ISIS effectively was the counterterrorism service. And the only reason the CTS was any good was because we did maintain uh, an operational, you know, uh, detachment A, an A team of uh, SF folks in Baghdad to train the CTS. The CTS were the uh, shock troops for the Iraqi security forces. Those guys wouldn't go anywhere unless they were led by the CTS. And the CTS were 100% a product of U.S. military continuous engagement, even after we withdrew everybody else from Iran. You know, just imagine what what, is, what the situation would have been like if we kept 2,500 folks there instead of 25. Our discussion so far has highlighted some broader themes on force structure, force employment, and tactical and operational adaptation. I'd next like to discuss your thoughts on how these principles will factor into the U.S. Army's future. Do you think that the current U.S. Army force structure has the ideal mix of light and heavy formations needed to deter and compete with near-peer adversaries like China and Russia, while simultaneously executing stability operations? Okay, so I'm going to say something controversial here. No, I don't think we have the right force structure. I think that heavy forces are the most flexible force that we have. You can dismount a heavy force, as we did in counterinsurgency. Uh, you cannot mount a light brigade. Maybe you can put them into strikers. Okay. Striker brigades are, are, are useful, especially when they operate 
task organized with heavy forces. When I commanded third corps, I used to send hybrid brigades to the National Training Center. I would take one of the combined arms battalions out and stick in a striker battalion. And when a striker brigade went, I would do the same thing in reverse. I put in a combined arms battalion, tank heavy. Uh, they don't need a lot of Bradley, you know, mech infantrymen and striker brigade. But I'd give them a bunch of tanks. That, you know, combination was incredibly flexible, very powerful. Uh, IBCTs, you know, they're strategically mobile, but operationally and tactically immobile. That is a problem. I think we really need to relook at rebalancing towards more striker and armor brigades and fewer infantry brigades. And the kind of infantry brigades I would begin cutting would be airborne brigades. Why do we need five airborne brigades? When's the last time we've done a combat jump that really was a combat jump? World War II. We don't really need airborne brigades, but we keep a lot of them around just because it feels good. He can only parachute in in a permissive environment. If there's any significant air defense there, you're not going to parachute these guys. That would be insane. That would be like the, you know, the German airborne assault of Crete, right? You know, that was the death of the German airborne. We would not be that stupid. We would not do that to each other, I would hope. So why do we make the big investment? An airborne. We should, okay, keep a, an airborne brigade or something like that around just, you know, for old time's sake, you know, but let's convert some of these guys into a more useful type of a force. Uh, they're great soldiers. Let's give them the tools that they need to fight. So I don't say abandon the SBAB, I would just repurpose them to an extent. I do think that our force structure is a little bit out of whack as we, uh, recalibrate towards pure competition, you know, uh, yeah, little green men, you know, how do you compete with them on the ground? We have people who can compete with little green men. They're called special forces groups. We, we seem to be afraid of putting them into unconventional warfare roles, but that's what they were originally intended for, is to go out there and form those little cadres of people that, you know, I mean, right, we'll blow up bridges and get there with the, with the French resistance. That's, that's what we need them to be focused on. So you graduated from West Point in 1981 as the U.S. Army had recently exited its sustained counterinsurgency experience in Vietnam and was refocusing training and doctrine on deterring Soviet aggression in Europe. There are some interesting parallels for the West Point class of 2021 as they prepare to enter the force later this month. Do you have any general advice for cadets as they prepare to graduate and lead soldiers in the coming months? Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, so as you said, I was in the Army for 37 years. And if you stay in the Army long enough, uh, you'll probably see it come full circle, you know. <laughs> uh, so I started out full to gap, you know, as a, as a troop commander faced with the Russians. And then the Russians went away. And then the Russians came back. And uh, combined arms warfare went away. We became counterinsurgency fighters. And then we came back to fighting uh, combined arms maneuver again. So, and, and we have all these debates, you know, are, population-centric coin guy, or you uh, just, look, I'd say don't get locked into one way of war fighting or one way of thinking. You know, keep an open mind. Keep thinking critically. Read about all other kinds of warfare and types of conflicts in history. You know, we were a constabulary army you know, in the Philippines for a long time. Got really good at counterinsurgency. And then World War II comes along, and we're like, you know, we, we dump all of our counterinsurgency stuff, and then after the World War II, and Vietnam, we're like, hey, how do we do counterinsurgency? Well, we got really good at it just earlier in that century, and then we like forgot about it, you know. So, 
So you just don't know what the future holds for you. You know, if you're going to find yourself in a in a counterinsurgency role or a combined arms, high intensity conflict, uh, large scale conflict operation, whatever it's going to be, the more you read of military history, uh, recent and even farther back, you know, Thucydides said, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So, you know, and then he wrote that a little while ago. So you, you don't go into a fight with a, uh, a blank canvas. You know, you're starting with a template. And trust me, every op military operation I ever planned or led, I could find a military precedent for it. And it helped inform me in the development of that plan. And my staff would say, wow, sir, I can think of that. I'm like, I read it somewhere in a book. Grant, you know, did something like this in the wilderness or in Vicksburg or whatever, you know, but, you know, Napoleon, there are a lot of examples out there. And I think military history is one of the best possible ways that we can prepare ourselves for the unexpected. Thank you, sir. So I'd just like to say thank you for your time and uh, sharing your insights with us. We truly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Soch Podcast. A sincere thank you to Lieutenant General McFarland for taking the time out of his schedule to chat with us, and a shout out to Major Van Wee for running the interview. If you enjoyed what you heard on our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whichever streaming service you're using. Please also feel free to send any comments, critiques, or suggestions socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu. We love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. The views expressed on this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. As always, thanks to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Major Yano, signing off. Till next time.